We are to be salt that preserves righteousness. We are to be light that dispels darkness. If it is politically correct and morally wrong, we need to speak up. We need to be heard. But we need to do it in a way that is honorable. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our ongoing study of the book of Romans, we've spent the past few days in chapter 13 looking at what God's Word has to say about government. One truth about all governments is that they have to be funded, and in most societies, governments are funded through taxes. And that's the subject of our study today as we move into verses 5 to 12 of Romans 13 in a message entitled, The Christian's Debt. God has placed the authority of government over us, and one of the ways we are to submit is through paying our taxes. Take your Bibles, would you? The book of Romans, chapter 13. You know, one of the most attractive features of the Bible is its practicality. Now, I remember the very first small group Bible study that I was ever in. The thing that amazed me was how practical the scriptures are. By contrast, about the same time, I went into my very first philosophy class at Boston College, and we studied Descartes and Hegel and Kierkegaard, and, and I learned how irrelevant philosophy was. After about two semesters, I'd had enough of that dribble for a lifetime. Now, wonder, God says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. And if you've ever studied philosophy, you know that they're often answering questions that no one is asking. Someone as well said, a philosopher is someone who talks about something that he doesn't know anything about, and then he makes you sound, feel stupid for not understanding. And that's not like the Bible. The Bible is so very, very practical. Whether it's the realm of theology, whether it's the realm of prophecy, because both aspects speak of God's nature and what He is like, or whether it's just putting into shoe leather, like this section of Romans does, the principles of theology and doctrine and prophecy into practice. If you remember, I've given you three words for each section of the book of Romans. The first section, the doctrinal section, where God's righteousness is defended or it's really established, and I gave you three words. Do you remember? The word condemnation, the word justification, and the word sanctification. And then, if you remember, we went into the second section, the national section of Romans that speaks to Israel, where God's righteousness is vindicated, it's proved, it's demonstrated that He is faithful to His promises. And I gave you three words. Election, how He elected Israel, chapter 9. How they rejected God, chapter 10. And then the word restoration, how God in the future will restore them. Now there's three words I want to give you for the practical section. The first key word in the practical section is the word bond. And the word bond really summarizes chapter 12. If you remember, that chapter is a turning point. He says, therefore... Because of God's mercies, present yourself to Him as a holy and living sacrifice. And so in the first two verses, we looked at our bond to God. Then in verses 3 through 16, we saw our bond to other believers, how we are to serve them. And he closes the chapter by speaking of our bond to the world. And that's, by the way, the identical pattern of John 15. Jesus speaks of our relationship to God, our relationship to one another, and our relationship to the world at large. When you come into the 13th chapter, the key word is the word behavior, behavior. In the first seven verses, he deals with our behavior to government, 
beginning in verse 8 all the way through verse 10. He deals with our behavior to our neighbor. And then in the rest of the chapter, our behavior towards ourself. And then the third key word that you want to write over chapters 14 and 15 is the word brother. In chapter 14, he deals with brothers who are weak. In chapter 15, brothers who are strong. And then in the rest of 15, brothers who are yet to be, those who are yet to find Christ. And if you remember almost three years ago when we began Romans, the 16th chapter is the conclusion to the book. Now, last time we got through the first four verses and we just cracked the door in verse 5. So we want to begin reading this morning in verse 5, Romans chapter 13. Follow along with me. Paul says, Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you want to use your note-taking outline there in your bulletin, two high points that I want us to think about. First concerns the Christian's debt to his government. The Christian's debt to his government, and this applies to those of us who are Americans or any nation of the world in which we find ourselves. And three simple truths that he highlights concerning our debt to government. The first is that we are to submit to the government. We're to submit to the government. Now, lest we run the risk of misinterpreting the text, let's refresh our memories with the context. If you look at verse 5, it begins with the word, therefore. And of course, whenever you ask, see the word therefore, you want to ask, what is it therefore? But actually, if you're using the older edition of the New American Standard or the King James, it does not say therefore, but it says wherefore. What's the difference between therefore and wherefore? Most of us don't have a clue, and that's why all of the newer translations, including the New King James, just put the word therefore. But there is a slight difference, and there are two different words that are used in the original. The adverb wherefore is an inference of what has been immediately said in the immediate context. And so it moves the argument on um, to a new point, whereas the word therefore gives an application and inference um, why not introduce, excuse me, the wherefore it takes an application of what has just been said, where therefore makes an application of what has been said. In other words, the one word looks back at what has been said, like in the first 11 chapters, and so in 12.1, therefore. But the word wherefore takes the immediate context and it continues the argument. So there is a difference. So let's go back in light of what he's just said. Look at verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And if you were here last time, he gave us three reasons why we should submit to the government. If you remember, the first was a theological reason. Because, he says, for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. In other words, our subjection 
to the government is first based on the fact that God established the government. He established three major institutions. First, the family, then the government in Genesis 9, and then the church under the new covenant. So we're to be subjection because God's idea was government. Secondly, we saw also an external reason in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, government is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear their sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. In other words, he's saying it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. If you disobey the government, you are going to experience the consequences of that government. Why? Because the government is God's minister. It is God's servant to put up what is good and to put down what is evil. Then he gives us a third reason, and it's not theological or external, but it's internal. And this is where we left off last, thing, last time. We should obey because it's simply the right thing to do. Look at verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. For conscience sake. Let me ask you the question I asked you last time. When you're driving down the road and you're absolutely sure that there's no police officer around anywhere... Do you step on the gas just a little bit harder? You see, Paul is saying that there's one motivation, namely because of wrath. We're fearful maybe of the ticket that we will get. But there's also another reason why we should obey, and that is for conscience sake. God wants us to have a clear conscience. And of course, a person's conscience is no better than that which calibrates it. And so the Bible speaks in 1 Timothy of a seared conscience. The book of Hebrews speaks of an evil conscience. A cauterized or a seared conscience is when all the nerve endings have been burned. Or through repeated rejection of what one knows internally to do what's right, they keep saying no and their conscience becomes callous and even evil and they develop what we studied in Romans 1, a depraved mind. What the King James says, a reprobate mind. Maybe the Russian translation captures best the nuance of the Greek. It says an upside-down mind where you call evil good and good evil. And we're seeing that in our day. People with an evil conscience, groups like ISIS that can justify slitting your throat in the name of God Almighty. But here in verse 5, remember who he is writing to. He's not writing to the lost. He's writing to those who are saved, those whose consciences have been regenerated, renewed, and awakened, and those whose consciences are continually and habitually being built through the study of Holy Scripture, the renewing of our minds. So Paul is saying, if you don't want to have that inner struggle of turmoil, then obey the law. And it's remarkable sometimes how we can rationalize our consciences. I came across a letter of one who wrote to the Internal Revenue Service, and he said this, the taxpayer payer wrote, Dear sirs, enclosed, you will find $150. I cheated on my income tax return last year, and I've not been able to sleep ever since. If I still have trouble sleeping, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> God is telling us here in verse 5 that civil disobedience 
will not give us a clear conscience. And God wants us to have a conscience that is clear. So our first responsibility is we are to submit to the government. There's a second responsibility, and that is we are to support the government. We're to support the government. Look now, if you will, at verse 6. It begins, for because of this. When you read that as a careful reader of the Bible, you'll immediately ask, because of what? Because of what God has instituted the government to do. For the government to do its job properly, for you to get the protection of the Army or the Navy or the Marines or the Air Force or the protection of a police officer, for because of this you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing, this very thing of praising good and putting down evil. You say, well, what if the government is wicked? Should I still pay my taxes? Well, the government in Jesus' day was wicked. And yet, if you remember in Matthew 17, 27, Jesus told Peter, go put your fishing pole in the water. And the first fish you pull up, he knew in his omniscience would have a stator in its mouth. You go pay your tax and mine as well. And Jesus said that to a government that was wicked, a government that was going to literally crucify him. Hold your finger here in Romans. Go to the first gospel in the New Testament, if you will. Go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, we see the leaders of Israel putting the Lord Jesus in a catch-22 of sorts. And notice, if you will, verse 15 of that chapter. We're told, then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. Now look at verse 16. And they sent their disciples to him. The Pharisees sent their disciples along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. They're just blowing smoke all over them. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? And then notice what he says in verse 19. Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness is in inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, this is a very important passage like the one we're studying this morning as it relates to our Christian citizenship. You give to Caesar that which is Caesar. Why? Because Caesar needs to do what God has called him to do. And Caesar cannot do what God has called him to do if he does not have the money to do it. It's our responsibility to pay taxes because God uses the Caesar that we are under to put down evil. And remember, Nero was in power when the Apostle Paul wrote this. He was far worse than Hitler, and yet Paul told the Christians to pay their taxes. However, as you pay your taxes, a good rule of thumb is this. Don't evade your taxes, but avoid paying all you can. <laughs> Evasion is sinful, it's evil, it is wrong. But paying more than you owe is just poor stewardship. It's not being a wise steward of that which God has entrusted to you. Jesus plainly said, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. Don't give him more than is his. Give him, though, what is due and to God the things that are God's. And so God commands us to pay taxes because every single one of us derive a benefit from the Caesar. And so we're to pay for it. Listen, we want the Caesar over us. 
And God knows we need the Caesar over us. And so right after Noah comes off the ark, God establishes the principle of government. Why? Because man is not basically good at heart. He is fallen. He is evil. He is sinful. And so no one would want to live in a town where there are no police or in a nation where there is no military to protect us. Understand the government in God's economy does not first and foremost exist to provide education or retirement system or good roads to drive on or a wonderful health care system. All those things have their place, but the principal reason God has raised up the government is to protect its citizens. And let me just say parenthetically while I'm on this soapbox, I don't think it's right that people in America should pay no tax. And so I read again this week that 50% of Americans pay zero federal income tax. Now, I think everyone should pay a tax, even if it's just $100. Everybody ought to pay something. Now, remember the government that they were under. It was an evil government, but God said pay their taxes. And God gave us a model, even under the theocracy of Israel. Everyone in Israel, everyone without exception, paid tax. And of course, God did this as an example to us. The Old Testament scriptures, the Bible says, was written for our instruction. But when the majority of the people are takers from the government, then the government will eventually become more and more in debt. And when one person receives a benefit without working for it, and another person must, then another person must work for that benefit so that person can receive it. Listen, the government cannot give you anything unless someone first gives to the government. And when half the people get the idea that they do not have to work because someone else is going to take care of them, and the other half think it does no good to work because the government's going to take it all from them, then we are in a position of self-destruction. And what I find so fascinating, if you've read The Fall and Rise of the Roman Empire then you know that there are two principal things that characterize Rome as it dissolved. Number one, there was moral internal rot. And number two, they became an entitlement society. And we as a nation are headed on that course. God says, look at verse 7, render to all what is due them tax to whom taxes do. Now the first word for tax found in verse seven, 6 is the identical word that's used here again in verse 7. And it's a word for tax that refers to all kinds of taxes of every kind, be it income tax or house tax or property tax or, or land tax. Before you is a car I once owned in the state of Texas. It's a 1960 Lincoln Mark V. I bought it with 49,000 original miles on it. The trunk was so large you could lay in it. It was the longest Lincoln, non-limousine Lincoln they ever made. It had an internal grease system where the fittings were automatically greased when the system was filled. In fact, that rear windshield went up and down. You could lower it up and down. I thought it was an ugly car, but I knew it was a valuable car. Only 1,542 of those ever made. To me, it looked kind of like an Etzel, just ugly. Nonetheless, I bought that ugly car with a view towards making some money to help pay for seminary. And by the grace of God, I made several thousand dollars on that car. And there was that niche market. So it sat in my garage for two years. And my wife said, this thing is a monstrosity. It's so big. And of course, she filled the trunk up with junk, things she wanted to store. And one day, my buyer came. 
And he wanted to give me my full asking price. And then he said to me, can we just change the bill of sale here? Instead of saying $6,000, I would just like it to read $2,000. I bought it for $1,500 if you're interested. I said, no, I can't do that. As much as I'd like to sell the car to you, I can't do that as a Christian. He said, I'll take it anyway, thank God. (laughs) Render to all what is due him. Tax to whom tax is due. And then there's another word for tax in the New Testament. Since it's a different word, our English Bible renders it custom. Custom to whom custom is due. This is the word telos that would refer to a toll or a duty tax or a custom fee paid on imported goods. We would call today maybe an import-export tax. And God says pay even these kinds of taxes without evasion. So a Christian doesn't come into the United States from being overseas with five watches on his wrist. He doesn't have three pearl necklaces that he doesn't declare. No, we are to pay taxes, even these kinds of taxes. People think all the time, well, there's no record of that. They'll never spot it. No, God wants us to be different. And I think it's rather ironic that one of Christ's apostles was an apostle, a tax collector that he saved. It's a reminder of the power of the gospel that God can take even a dishonest tax collector and make him into a wholesome person. So when we think about our debt to government, number one, we're to submit to the government. Number two, we're to support the government. And number three, we are to be respectful of the government. We're to be respectful. Let's keep reading on in the verse. Fear to whom fear, honor, to whom honor. Now, the word here for fear, phobos, in this context, carries the idea of respect or courtesy. And so many of your translations render it that way, respect to whom respect. We are to respect the office. God calls us to do that. We have many in these services today, Marines and Navy personnel, and many of you have had to give a salute to a person that you knew was not a person of moral principle. But you do it anyway. Why? Because you respect the office. That's what Paul is referring to here. And then he adds, render honor to whom honor is due. And I think many times as a pastor, I see that we as born-again Christians are failing in this area, in this command. Let me ask you a question. When you discuss the President of the United States, When you discuss the city councilman or the police officer who just wrote you a ticket, do you speak with them with a sense of derision, with a sense of slurring remarks? Do your children see you complaining more about people in office or praying more for people who are in office? And unfortunately, we cheapen the testimony of Jesus Christ, especially when we tell stupid and sick jokes on those who are in authority over us. Now, it doesn't mean that if the president or the principal or the superintendent or your senator or your representative is wrong in a moral decision that you should not speak up. We are to speak up. Like Elijah spoke to Ahab, like John the Baptist spoke to Herod. And I will speak up as long as this government is endorsing the murder of little babies in the womb, as long as they are endorsing what God calls a perversion, homosexual sex, as long as they are endorsing safe sex for our children in the schools, I will speak up. And you are to speak up. We are to be salt. 
that preserves righteousness, where to be light that dispels darkness. If it is politically correct and morally wrong, we need to speak up. We need to be heard. But we need to do it in a way that is honorable, just like Daniel spoke in an honorable way before King Darius. Listen, I told you last time that the best citizens of this world ought to be believers. We ought to be known for the kind of Christianity that honors the government. And I see a lot of Christians spinning their wheels, and they've been doing it for decades now, pouring all of their free time into trying to change the government. Look, we ought to speak up and we ought to get up and vote. But if you think that's the solution, you're dead wrong. We're running out of people of character and moral principle to vote for. The only way to change the opinion of a person is to change the person. And the only way to change the person is through the preaching of the gospel. It's only the power of the gospel that can change a life, that can make a person a new creature in Christ Jesus. I told you we are in the practical section of Romans. It's very practical. He's putting the theology and prophecy and doctrine of the first 11 chapters into shoe leather in this section. So we saw in the 12th chapter how we are to practically use our spiritual gifts in serving each other. We saw in that chapter how we are to love without hypocrisy, how we are to love even those who hate us, even our enemies. And now in this 13th chapter, he's speaking about our debt to the government. We're to submit to them, we're to support them, and we are to be respectful of the government. Now he turns a corner when we come in verses 8 through 10, and he speaks about the Christian debt to his neighbor. The Christian debt to his neighbor. And there are three aspects that he wants to underscore in our thinking. Three aspects of our relationship to our neighbor, and the first concerns our debt. We are to pay what is due. We're to pay what is due. Look now, if you will, at verse 8. The apostle writes, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now, there's two commands in this verse, and the first command concerns the Christian in debt. I found out this week that 80% of Americans are using someone else's money. I also was reminded not only that 8 in 10 are using someone else's money, but that the average American household now has $9,000 in credit debt. That's the average. $9,000 in credit debt, and most of them are paying interest that's in the double digits. So we need to ask some important questions here. Number one, when the Bible says here, owe nothing to anyone, does that mean we should never go into debt? Most of us are paying off a house or a business or a car, possibly a student loan or some medical bill. Is that what verse 8 is saying? Some would say that. Some would say you should never, ever, ever borrow. I think the key to understanding this verse is first the word owe. If you're interested, if you're a linguist of sorts, it's in Greek what we call a present imperative. In other words, you could translate it, don't keep on owing anything. Well, when do I owe someone anything? When it's due. If your rent is due on the 10th of the month and you've paid it on the 20th, then you haven't paid it by the due day. If your mortgage or your car payment or whatever is due on a certain day and you don't pay it, then you are owing something that you should not owe. If you went into business and you borrowed capital, you don't pay it back, then it is wrong. The mandate not to owe anything to anyone is not a command against borrowing, although certainly there are benefits to being totally debt-free. 
but rather it's a command against being delinquent in repayment. And next week, Pastor Brogy will flesh that out in our ongoing study of Romans. We're in chapter 13 and a message entitled, The Christian's Debt. To listen again to this or any of the messages in our series from Romans, use the Search the Scriptures app with Dr. Carl Brogy. It's available for tablets and smartphones, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM63. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And you can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. When we return Monday, we'll continue our look at the Christian's debt. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.